Hello and welcome to the Friday, August 27th edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, Troopergate, a contest in Iowa's 2nd District, and Mask Madness. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor, Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up today, Troopergate. In previous podcasts, we've talked about Governor Kim Reynolds' decision to send Iowa State troopers to the Texas border to help President Joe Biden handle the flood of immigrants coming across the border. Until this week, we didn't know much about the deployment, such as the cost and how many troopers were involved. Um, the Gazette's Aaron Jordan looked at the records, including about 3,500 pages of emails, and found that the state public safety leaders had some of the same concerns that the public had about the governor's commitment uh, that it would leave would not leave enough staff for law enforcement obligations and would run up a significant cost uh, sending personnel out of state. The actual cost of deploying 28 troopers to Texas for two weeks ended up being nearly $295,000 which Iowans, not Texans, will pay. And while that's small potatoes uh, in the grand scheme of state spending, it's still $295,000 from a state agency that lawmakers have been saying has been underfunded for years. Um, the governor defended her actions, um, saying that her first responsibility is the health and safety of Iowans and the humanitarian crisis at the nation's southern border is affecting all 50 states. Uh, apparently, she didn't feel the health and safety of Iowans was at stake when Minnesota authorities asked for help under the same mutual aid agreement as Texas cited to deal with civil unrest in the wake of the George Floyd murder last year. Uh, Todd, it, it seems reasonable people can disagree with the governor that, quote, Iowa has no choice but to act because of the rise in drugs, human trafficking, and violent crimes has become unsustainable. Um but it seems like there's another issue here, as Senator Joel Bolcom said, it, it, this was just the latest example of Reynolds keeping Iowans in the dark. Um, and, and he said that the governor, who we expect will announce she's running for re-election sometime next month, is using the state re resources and the Iowa State Patrol in an ongoing effort to build her far-right political resume. Uh, fair criticism? Oh, I, I think so. Uh, I think, you know, Aaron Jordan's story, one of the interesting aspects of it was that it sort of hinted that the Reynolds administration was was waiting, you know, with bated breath for an opportunity to send forces to the border in some, you know, are there any states that are asking for this yet? And, and so it seems like uh, she was kind of itching to do this. Uh, and of course, the political aspect of it is obvious. I mean, this is a, you know, a, a main Republican talking point that, uh, that, you know, this, there's a crisis at the border and it's Joe Biden's fault. And, and so that's, that's pretty boilerplate right now. I mean, the other side of this is that there's, you know, the, the, the part that, that basically when people ask how much was, this was going to cost, they then wouldn't tell people how much it was going to cost. I mean, they were very sort of secretive ahead of it and what, you know what this was going to entail what they were going to be doing you know who was going to pay for it all of these kind of basic questions couldn't be answered and i think that just goes back to we you know right now we've got kind of a lack of accountability 
in the you know for the governor and the state legislature controlled by republicans hasn't been willing to you know look at you know how she misspent uh covid relief funds uh, how how they're not you know fulfilling they're violating the open records law by not fulfilling requests in a timely matter or completely ignoring them i mean there's just a long list of things that this administration is doing that you know are questionable potentially illegal and you know the legislature is just sort of content to sit by and watch that happen there's no oversight uh there's not going to be any oversight from the agencies that she her appointees control so basically the, the governor can you know do as she pleases and that's basically what she's been doing and uh not telling the media about things apparently pleases her a lot <laughs> Yeah, uh, Aaron, uh, uh, on that note, uh, you're, you're the president of the Iowa Capital Press Association, which has concerns similar uh, to Senator Bolcom, uh, that the governor is choosing to keep Iowans in the dark uh, about many of the things her administration is doing. And I'm thinking about questions Iowans have had about COVID-19 information, uh, her office not disclosing the data uh, or in, not disclosing it in a way that was easy to follow and to use. Um, her office doesn't even inc- disclose her public schedule, sometimes maybe an hour before an event where the governor is going to participate. Um, uh, and as Todd said, not honoring public records requests, not responding to reporters' questions, not granting interviews except with friendly radio talk show hosts. Um, do you see a pattern here? And why should Iowans care? There has definitely been um, a an unsettling uh, might be the right word uh, trend uh, pattern um, that uh, this administration has uh, become increasingly less transparent. It's become more and more difficult to, um, and you highlighted some of them. The, the public schedule has been a problem. Um, the fulfillment of freedom of information requests has been a huge problem. And and for those who aren't familiar, that's when, you know, reporters or or the public too. I mean, that freedom of information isn't just a journalist tool. It's, it's, it's for the public, anyone um, who wants to request uh, documents um, from state government uh, are supposed to be able to do that and receive that information in a timely manner. And that has been extremely problematic uh, with this uh, administration. Uh, So it's troubling. And, um, why should the public care? Uh, you know, that's if you don't have a transparent government, you're <laughs> you're going to get the government um, that you deserve. Uh, frankly, um, I, I don't know how uh, uh, better to say it people to people. I, I know a lot of times when these things come up, it, it's tough from our seat and, and our spot in that discussion because there's just a lot of people out there who will just roll their eyes and um you know say oh you guys are just you know trying to cause trouble or stir up drama or this or that or or just the liberal media who cares what you want or think you uh deserve to have anyways and i mean that's it, it's tough to to get through that and, and the bottom line is if you've got a government that does all its work in secret um um that government is going to learn that it can do more and more things in secret. And, and odds are they're going to start doing things that um, you really don't want them to do. Um, 
And that's, that's why these uh, public records laws are in place. And, and uh, um, we need a government, um, regardless of political affiliation, that's um, responsive to those kinds of things. And, and uh, to be frank, we're having trouble with that right now. Yeah, it's, there's been a real change, uh, actually, you know, just, I would say, in the last couple of years in this administration. And I think one of the things that has frustrated people uh, like us, reporters and people in the media, is that uh, the governor's office historically has been pretty open. Uh, you know, the, the century of Branstead uh, in the governor's <laughs> office. I mean, you know, you just had to hint that you had a microphone and he would start talking to you. Um, <laughs> Tom Vilsack carried on that tradition uh, of weekly press conferences pretty much consistently through his administration. Chet Culver, not quite as much, but uh, you know, when, when Branstead came back into office, he had his weekly news conferences. And, and it was a, a way um, you know, to ask those questions that uh, Iwans wanted answers to. And, um, you know, we've seen uh, a real change. Uh, weekly news conferences uh, are a little bit spotty uh, under Governor Reynolds, even though she promised to have a weekly news conference uh, back when she was running uh, in, when was that, 2018 when she ran? Uh, yeah, correct. For, yep. uh, yeah, she promised to have weekly news conferences. Um, her, her weekly news conferences sometimes are more of a, a dog and pony show than a question answer format, which is also very frustrating. So, um, yeah, it just seems like there's a pattern here of holding the the public at arm's length and just saying, we'll do we'll do what's best for you. Don't ask any questions. Uh, and that's never um, um, a, a good approach, I guess, uh, at least from our perspective. Um Moving along here, let's talk about the second district race. Uh, Tom Barton had the story this week that first term state representative Christina Bohannon is running for the second district house seat held by Representative Marionette Miller Meeks. Um, Tom, this is a district that Donald Trump carried twice uh, by four points uh, in 2020 and 4.1 percentage points in 2016. Miller Meeks carried the district that includes Scott and Johnson counties, as well as 22 mostly rural counties by just six votes, not six points, but six votes. Um, what's Bohannon's pitch, and can she find seven votes to get a victory? So Bohannon's making the pitch that uh, she knows firsthand the struggles that many Iowa, uh, Iowa families have faced during the pandemic, recounting her family's own struggles growing up in a rural small-town trailer park. Uh, her parents didn't graduate high school. Her father struggled to provide for the family as a construction worker. And as a teenager, when she was in high school, her father fell ill from emphysema and had his health insurance canceled, forcing the family, she said, to choose between paying for his medicine and paying the family's bills. But thanks to the support and guidance of teachers, student loans, scholarships, um, she got a fair shot. She was the first in her family to go to college. She paid for her degree in um, environmental engineering and then law school. She said by picking oranges, cleaning trailers, and working as an engineer. And, and if, if elected to Congress says that she will fight to ensure that hardworking Iowa families and small businesses receive a fair shot to get ahead. She argues too many Iowa families are struggling, worrying that uh, they're just one bad break from not making ends meet like her family. 
Um, and uh, again, if elected, says that she would work for more technical and vocational training um, for high skill, high wage jobs, greater investment in children in schools, steps to make Iowa a clean energy leader, strong protections for voting rights, and better access to quality, affordable health care and, uh, and broadband. As for whether she can find seven votes, we'll see. Um, it's doable. It's not an insurmountable hurdle, but it will hinge on her ability to reach out to and sway white working class voters in the district who twice voted for Obama only to swing and twice support Donald Trump. Um, you know, she'll have a difficult task of trying to keep her base and appease Johnson County Democrats while again, also, you know, appealing to those white working class voters from these industrial river towns in southeastern Iowa with a once robust Democratic union base um, who have shown their willingness to, again, swing one way or the other, depending on, on the candidate. Um, you know, if she can demonstrate that she would be a independent minded politician um, you know, in the vein of Jim Leach or Dave Loebsack, who previously held this seat, you know, someone who's willing to break with their party and Nancy Pelosi on certain issues and, you know, put the district above partisan politics, while at the same time, you know, tying Miller Meeks to Republican obstructionism that's blocking a Biden uh, administration economic agenda that would benefit working class Iowans, then yeah, I think she can be successful. I think she can find those votes. But if the pandemic or the situation in Afghanistan continue to work, I think Democrats um, may well lose the confidence of the moderate swing voters that uh, lifted the party to victory in 2020. Yeah, it, it seems like it might be a challenge for her since you know she ran for the legislature. She won the Democratic primary, you know, basically uh, running as the progressive candidate, the, the candidate, that, the Democrat who was more woke, um, you know, and defeated a long, long, long time um, Democratic representative in that Iowa City district, and now she has to somehow pivot to those voters you talked about who voted for Donald Trump. Um, Todd, uh, as Tom mentioned, this district include places like Clinton, Fort Madison, Burlington, and Ottumwa, where voters used to be reliable Democrat Democrats. Um, how, how can Bohannon bring them back into the fold? I have no idea. <laughs> just to be, just to be quite honest. I mean, you know, Tom's right. There's, there's, uh, you know, there's something to be said for appealing to those on those economic issues and trying to, you know, be an, sort of independent, a little more moderate. I mean, I think that's what Rita Hart did, and only lost by you know six votes. And I think there was a lot of sort of in the in the post mortem on that that there, you know, they looked at like the University of Iowa and places and how many people undervoted in that election and didn't bother voting for the congressional seat. I, I have a feeling it was a lot more than six. So, uh, I mean, so, you know, if, if, if Christina Bohannon runs that kind of campaign and then does a better job on university outreach and, and getting, you know, campaigning on campus and some of those things, I mean, maybe, maybe that's enough to swing the district back. But Tom's also right about the Democratic brand being sort of banged up at this point with Afghanistan. Uh, problem, and then of course the border is, is still an issue, and, and and Republicans are making a lot of hay out of that. So, uh, you know, and the progressives will tell you that the way to win is to, you know, is to have bold ideas and and not become, you know, not run as Republican light, and you know, stake out some di 
differences and, and show rural Iowans that, you know, sort of co corporate agriculture and a lot of these other factors that are shaping their lives are not necessarily, the Republicans back are not necessarily good things. I mean, how, what have, what have Republicans done for you lately? I mean, these small towns are shrinking, uh, their kids are leaving the state. I mean, it's, so I think she's going to have to strike that balance, but uh, I mean, it's a district that the Democrats clearly can win uh, if, if, you know, if, if, this, if Biden writes the ship and, and maybe things look a little better next year. But, yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be tough. And if Democrats knew how to how to, what that formula was, they they probably would have used it by now and they haven't had much luck. Yeah. Uh, so I think we've clearly established that the second district uh, is in play, uh, Aaron. Um, and, and with Democrats feeling a strong challenger in the first district uh, and Bohannon in the second district, uh, can Democrats turn eastern Iowa blue again? Uh, can they? Absolutely. hundred percent they can. Uh, will they? I, I don't know. Um, but but yeah, both of these races are going to be uh, competitive. And as you noted now, um, uh, Liz Mathis is a very strong candidate in that first district. Um, and look, I mean, these seats have been Republican for all of um you know what time is it eight eight months so um it, it's it's not like you have to go back into ancient history to find uh democratic representation in either of these areas so 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 absolutely and and the other i i think one of the interesting things that well i i know i'm watching for and the problem is i don't know that we'll have an answer until the day after election day um more than a year from now is what the electric looks like and, and specifically those Trump voters and, and whether they come out in a midterm election when Trump's not on the ballot. Um, I'm sure Republicans will do their best to find those voters and find a way to motivate them uh, to turn out because that group clearly helped Republicans down the ticket in Iowa uh, last year, including um, Ashley Henson in the first district and Marionette Miller-Meeks in the second um, so that's the Republicans' challenge is, is to find those voters who came out to, to vote for Donald Trump in, in 2020 and make sure that they're also coming out and voting again in 2022 when, when Trump's uh, not on the ballot. Um, that will have a huge and, and that will have a big impact in the third district race uh, here in central Iowa, too. So, so um, you know, the that's just one of the factors that will play into these districts that are so competitive and, you know, just little shifts in the wind can make a, make a huge difference in, in, in competitive districts like these. Um, so yeah, I, I expect three competitive uh, races um, at this point anyways. I mean, who knows what happens between now and then, but um, Democrats got to feel good assuming Cindy Axney is running for reelection Um I think I think they like Christina Bohannon as a candidate, so I, I feel like Democrats probably feel good about their lineups, and um, the fourth districts uh, is now a pipe dream. But uh, I feel like they got to feel good about their chances to to go back to having three, three of the four in Congress again. Of course, uh, part of the the answer to your question, Aaron, will be uh, you know in in uh, another what uh, I don't know year, 14 months, whatever, uh, will anybody care about Afghanistan or will anybody care about uh, whether you have to wear a mask or not? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's we always have to have that caveat at this point. We have no idea what the big issue is going to be 
this November, much less next November. <laughs> yeah. But the issue right now in the People's Republic of Johnson County is masks. Iowa City Mayor Bruce Teague uh, has defied Governor Kim Reynolds by issuing a mask mandate, requiring people, uh, requiring masks in classrooms and other gathering spots, including stores, restaurants, and churches in Iowa City. Teague said that he took those extraordinary measures to ensure that we all get out of this COVID COVID panic together. Um, The response from the governor's office was, it's against the law and it's not enforceable. and sort of echoing the governor's um, mantra that Iowans know how to protect themselves and their families. But not everybody thinks that Teague is out of bounds with his mandate. The argument is that the the law uh, Iowa legislators approved and signed by Reynolds bars cities from taking any, any action that requires owners of real property to implement a, a, a mask mandate. Uh, and their analysis is that Teague doesn't require property owners to take any action, but he puts the bonus, the onus or the responsibility on individuals to wear masks in public venues. Todd, um, this mask order expires at the end of September. Will he be in court before then? Uh, will this be a sequel to the local minimum wage enacted in Johnson County and other areas uh, under home rule in the recent past? I don't. I don't think he'll be in court. I mean, when the uh, Iowa City Community School District and the University of Iowa both said that they weren't going to abide by the mandate, I think that sort of took the teeth out of it and and left pretty, you know, pretty wide expanses of Iowa City that aren't going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, that aren't going to do that, aren't going to mask. Uh, but yeah, you could see the legislature come in next year and, you know, pass a tighter ban on on masking and maybe throw in you know, uh, grocery sacks or <laughs> whatever they can think of that Iowa City might someday ban. They'll have to put their heads together and try to think like socialists, I guess, and then put that together. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't think it's. He's not going to get taken to court. I don't think it. I don't think it would be worth it. And I, I don't see the governor doing it because, I mean, she basically allowed the cities to do mandates all through last year when she said that the attorney general thought that those were illegal and, and nobody challenged him in court. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem likely that uh, Attorney General Tom Miller is going to challenge this. Um, like you said, he apparently said he didn't think it was legal last year, and supposedly he's reviewing what Iowa City has done. But I, I'm guessing that that might take more than 30 days. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Tom, is there any uh, push for mask mandates in the Quad Cities area? I, I mean, are people talking to the city council and about doing this sort of thing? Uh, no, no, uh, no. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, n- nobody's nobody's pushed the the city council to to do a mask mandate, and there's been no conversations about it. And I don't see any. Um, any 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 willingness or interest to want to do that, just given how politicized the issue of masks have become. Um, you know, the city didn't do a mask mandate last year, um, so I don't see them doing one again this year. And you know, um, you know, riling people up and potentially you know drawing the ire of Davenport residents when it's an election year, because we've got 
because remember we've got we got city elections this fall, right? So yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a hot button issue that they don't want to wade into. And the other thing is, you know, they don't want to potentially draw the ire of um, the governor's office at a time when um, they're asking for state assistance and resources to address issues related to crime. Mm -hmm. well, going back to Iowa City for just a second, I saw something on social media last night. Somebody pointing out that the Iowa City police apparently were not wearing masks. Um, so uh, <laughs> apparently the, the mask mandate doesn't have teeth. Um, Aaron, uh, a council bus mother is suing the governor and the directors of the departments of education and, and human services over the lack of masks in schools. Um, is this, do you think this is going to go to court and that we're going to get a, a decision from the court on whether or not um, the governor acted um, legally, constitutionally, and in, in signing a, a law that says uh, no mask mandates? Yeah, I. Um, it's a great question, and I am certainly not a lawyer and, and uh, not whole, a whole lot closer to even being a, a legal expert or analyst, so, so I don't I, I can't say how much, um, you know, legal legitimacy this has, this lawsuit, um, how much, um, you know, what, what kind of chances it has. Um, but it's interesting. It could um, wind up, you know, being one of those things. And, you know, the judge could issue a temporary injunction to, to stop the law while, while the lawsuit is considered. Um, we can, so we could wind up with a scenario like we've had with these uh, abortion bills that have passed where, um, you know, it gets blocked temporarily and then we wait on the course to decide. Um, um, I don't know. It, it, I mean, I, I would think to me, it, it seems like the, the best legal argument they would have is the um, usurping of, of local control, um, taking away the ability of, of local districts um, to, to make those decisions for themselves. But that didn't seem to be, uh, again, based on my extremely rudimentary reading of the, of the, of the suit, it didn't seem to be the, the argument that they were making. It, it, was, it was more about, you know, students having the right to go to school in a safe place. And, and then by having this law in place, it, it's making schools unsafe. So that was kind of their legal argument they took. So, so I have no idea how much that's going to hold water uh, with the judge, uh, but it'll certainly be interesting. And man, if it does end up in the courts, uh, I, we could be headed for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or months or what it is of chaos of schools starting the year, not being able to have a mask ban, and then maybe it gets a temporary injunction. So for now you can have one if you want, or a mask requirement, sorry. And then it gets, a, the law gets a temporary injunction. Now you can put a requirement in place if you want, but the whole thing could get turned back around again later. And it, it could end up being a, a crazy mess here, depending on which way it goes. I, I feel like we need to have a disclaimer here that none of the members of the on Iowa politics podcast team are attorneys <laughs> and we are not offering legal advice and that if you do need legal advice seek your own counsel uh, <laughs> absolutely um I, it also strikes me that the other lawsuit that was filed uh, against the governor this week um actually i guess the same day as the the lawsuit over mask was the the one uh regarding unemployment benefits that the governor acted um, illegally in, in cutting off the federal supplemental um, 
unemployment benefits. Uh, and there's some language about um, the state workforce development director and the governor doing everything, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically doing everything they can to, um, you know, help or assist unemployed people. And the idea that turning down that federal aid uh, did not fulfill that requirement. Um, obviously, the mask situation, I think, is getting a lot more attention. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, the, you think about the number of Iowans who would have been eligible for that assistance and, uh, you know, the money involved there uh, could have a, a, a big impact on those folks. And finally, is it the final final? Senator Chuck Grassley this week announced he will complete his 41st annual 99-county tour uh, September 1st uh, when he stops in Adair County. Yes or no, Tom, is this the final full Grassley? No. Aaron, Todd, the final final? Aaron? Uh, I'll say no, he's running literally and politically. All right. Todd, final word. I'll, I'll say no unless, you know, the, at some point soon the state comes to its senses and decides to not have 99 counties anymore that could be the full grassley could be like you know 30 counties or something like that It'd make a lot more sense It'd be a lot easier on people right? all right maybe maybe finally they'll decide that uh, lee county doesn't need a north and a south it doesn't need two uh right right yeah or maybe they'll cut kasuth and make a hundred and it'll be the the full grassley will be a hundred counties there you go you know, uh, state auditor Rob Sand is doing his version of the full Grassley. He's going to 100 courthouses. So he's oh. sort of one-upping Grassley. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, the 100 courthouse tour. So take that, Chuck Grassley. <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, tell a friend and tell them to subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. You can find us on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Jeremy Jacobs will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Tom, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well. Thank you.